Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den here at Dirk Towers in Adlington, Chorley, in the UK. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff, mostly packed into boxes, my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. I've managed to unpack my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Munro. I'll just, uh, I'll just give it a tap. It's uh, spun round to 1986, where she goes back to school as Carol Manning in Slaughter High, with an intriguing Anglo-American accent. Hmm. Regular listeners will realise that I've moved house from Bolton to Adlington. It's only two miles down the road, but it's a world of difference. You can take Dirk out of Bolton, but you can't take Bolton out of Dirk. And if you're not a regular listener, well welcome. Uh, Don't get distracted by my stupid voice. You'll get used to it, and before long, you'll be using this as a relaxation tape. Uh, This is a great description from iTunes of what we're trying to do on the podcast uh, in the form of a review by Dr. RPG himself, Ian Griffith. This podcast casts an eye over RPGs from their earliest days through to the modern day. Each show is themed and draws on the host's own experiences playing the systems back in the day, and presented in a round-table format, conversational, warm and honest. There's a great deal of nostalgia in the show, which is unsurprising, as the host's love of the hobby is deep and long-standing. But there's plenty for everyone here, as they offer insight on modern games. It's a great resource for folks coming from a purely modern games and wondering, how did we get here? Thanks for the review, Doc. He's a long-time listener and supporter, which proves that however long you've been listening, or wherever you are in the world, pop us a review and it'll make us very happy. We are that needy. Moving house has made me think about place and the effect it has on identity psychogeography of place, how the physical world develops our routines and patterns of existence and the shape who you are and your memories. In this podcast we'll be not looking at a game or a supplement or a magazine. We'll be revisiting the hallowed space we revered as young gamers. Games Workshop Store Games Workshop had many entities back in the day. Distributor, importer, publisher, games design and computer software developers, among others. But here we're concerned with its role as a retailer. We're also going to look at the earliest Citadel figures and reflect on the theme of the physical versus the virtual. The stuff on the tabletop and how that shapes our imagination and the theatre of the mind. 
Like many grognards in the UK, I have a nostalgia for those early days of Games Workshop, and I make no apology for my longing to a pre-lapsarian time when things were small enough to be genuinely friendly and interpersonal. When I'm not playing games or making podcasts, I work in the world of customer service. Believe me, that magical interface that Games Workshop had with its customers back then is being sought out by every huge organisation following globalisation, digitalisation and automation. We use this ugly term, the customer experience, to try and capture and replicate that philosopher's stone that creates genuine delight to those that contact us. Games Workshop turned lead into gold before they switched to plastic. Prior to the dramatic shift in their business model in the mid-80s, there was a genuine feeling that the stores were communicating to you at a personal, individual level. When they suddenly turned their backs on RPGs, in the words of Tony Soprano, they were dead to me. In this episode, I'll be giving an extremely potted history of Games Workshop before I'm joined by one of the alchemists that made the magic happen. Tim Olson. Tim was the manager of the Dalling Road branch in Hammersmith, London. At the very beginning, Dalling Road was the epicentre of Games Workshop. It was where White Dwarf was edited from. At Daily Dwarf from Twitter has made a great two-part contribution to how miniatures were covered in the magazine in those early days. Part one is included in here. I'm joined in the room of role-playing rambling by Blythe, and we once again talk about how we started in role-playing and how miniatures played their role in hooking us into the hobby. We have the usual reflections on how the continuity of uh, these experiences have shaped how we play today. At the end, I have patrons to thank for their generous role in keeping things going and details of what's coming in the second part of this episode. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. A very potted history. I met Tim Olson, this episode's special guest, at one of the oldest pubs in Manchester, the Las Ogari. It's only a couple of miles away from the Curry Mile, so-called because of the number of Indian restaurants located there, in the Rush Home district of Manchester, where Ian Livingstone first grew up. He met Steve Jackson at Altrincham Grammar School, where they shared a passion for board games such as chess and Monopoly, especially Monopoly. They also developed an interest in postal games of diplomacy and came into contact with Don Turnbull, who would later become the head honcho of TSR UK, as he was the editor of a diplomacy fanzine. After university, they got together again in London with uh, their friend John Peake and shared a flat. In between working as wage slaves in thankless jobs, they dreamt up ways in which they could translate their passion for playing into a living. In 1975, Games Workshop was born as a mail-order company, so-called because they sold boards for backgammon, Go and traditional games. 
They also produced a games fanzine, The Owl and the Weasel, that somehow managed to find its way to Lake Geneva and into the hands of Gary Gygax, who at the time was in a similar position to them, trying to develop his love of games into a business. He sent him a copy of Dungeons and Dragons to them, and they struggled to grasp the rules initially, but straight away they knew that it was something special. They made an order for a handful of copies and secured the European distribution rights for three years. John Peake left them at this point as he was more interested in uh, woodcraft of the traditional games. They also moved out of their flat when it became untenable, running down from the top floor of a third floor flat to get to the phone in the house just as the landlord was hanging up on another customer. They decided to get a small office for their business rather than somewhere to live. They slept in the back of a van and joined the squash club so they could enjoy the three S's every morning. A shower, a shave and a short game of squash. Eventually they struck a deal with the estate agent landlord to swap their offices for a shop. So in April 1978 their first ever shop in Hammersmith London was opened. They added other games to their portfolio, producing RuneQuest and Traveller, and new stores opened pretty soon after in Birmingham and Manchester. In 1981, they teamed up with Brian Ansell to help create Citadel Miniatures. They handed the management of the business to him. Together with Tom Kirby, he developed a vertically integrated model where they stopped selling other people's games to focus on their own. From the relative humble beginnings at the beginning of the decade, by the end of the 80s there were 30 stores with an international presence and ready for a management buyout. I'm in Manchester, we're sitting on the banks of the Matlock in the world's first industrial city um, and we can smell the effluent in the air as uh, we drink a warm pint in the snug of the last Sagari. But we're transporting ourselves hundreds of miles down the road to that there fancy London. We're going back in time too, as uh, we're going to open the box on the very first Games Workshop store in Dalling Road, London. I'm joined by Tim Olsen, who was a manager of that uh, branch. Hello, Tim. Wow. Hello, Derek. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So tell me, Tim, going back then, how did you get into role-playing? How did you get into the hobby? Well, let me tell you a story. Back in the late 70s, I had just moved back to England from the States and my brother and I had been playing the role-playing games that were coming out. Mm -hmm. So we were playing the really early stuff, the really early box set of D&D, getting really into it. Um, And he found out, remember this is the time before the internet, Mm -hmm. you had to really look for things then. But he found out about this store in London and he went down and just went straight to the guy and said can I have a Saturday job please and the guy behind the counter a friend of mine called Colin Reynolds just basically went uh, yeah sure do you know anything about games and so they chatted for a while about D&D and about three months later this is 1979 um, I thought I'd like to try that so I went down to London and my brother John introduced me to Colin 
and I had a Saturday job when I was 20. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, Colin had to leave the company for a while because of health problems. And Ian and Steve said to me, would you like to take over the store while he's gone? And I said, I would love to. Because at the time I was working as a, a stockman in an electronic supply company. Right. So I was basically being given shopping lists by engineers of resistors and transistors and diodes. And that was my job, filling those little bags every day. So I had a chance to get involved with something I loved. And uh, I moved to London, late 79. And just t tell us about those uh, early games then, so when you're back in the States. How did you manage to fathom out what to do uh, with those uh, that early box set of D&D? Uh, because by all accounts it was impenetrable. It was hard work, mm. but I think what happened is we went to a game store in Maryland. I was living just outside Baltimore at the time. And the manager of that store, I think it was the complete strategist, uh, he had gaming going on upstairs in his store and he says guys you got to try this new game and so basically I think it was a case of us all working it out uh, and I think it was the acting part of the game that once you had down the the basics rolling the dice uh, everything about it hit points armor everything like that D&D &D was always just about telling a story and being a character yeah. So yeah, just absolutely loved that. Yeah. So when you when you went down down to London, so you mentioned uh, Ian and Steve. So Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson were they very hands on at the store then back in? Oh my gosh, when I went there in '79, mm. um, this was before Fighting Fantasy had hit. Yeah. So their offices were upstairs in Dowling Road. Right. So basically, I had no office, yeah. uh, and they did all of their work upstairs. And there was a small warehouse in North London, place Hythe Road, which any Games Workshop fan will recognise that address yeah. uh, from all the mail orders that they were doing. But no, very. Ha and I tell you, one of the the thing, the reason I loved Games Workshop uh, is Steve and Ian were friends more than bosses. Yeah. So, like every Sunday, we used to go to Regent's Park and play baseball, and Ian had a team called the Hot Rats and Steve's team were the Sharks, and we had t-shirts made. But yeah, we all got to get Albie Fiore, who was one of the early designers, who sadly has passed now. Um, yeah, we always we just used to get together, all the girlfriends, and just play baseball, and then go out for something to eat. It was that kind of relationship. Absolutely brilliant. And of course, you've been playing lots of games as well with you at that time. Oh yeah, I mean, they used to hold games all the time. We would hold games at their house. Uh, we lived up in North London, um, we actually, to be honest, we lived in quite a few places. Uh, we lived in Fulham and then Shepherd's Bush, but we ended up in Kilburn. Mm -hmm. And a funny story about that, if I can tell this story. Yeah, yeah, of course. Funny story about that is my next door neighbour mm -hmm. at the time was a fledgling artist just out of the Glasgow School of Art uh, named Ian McKay. Mm -hmm. And Ian and Duncan and Joe, who actually lived upstairs from us, uh, we made friends with them and they were looking for work. Now Ian McCaig was fresh out of school. He was working for the Radio Times doing little illustrations uh, and Duncan was doing the same thing, book covers, you know, small jobs. And so I asked Ian if he would design our first carrier bag. 
So any of the fans out there might remember the spaceman playing the Barbarian, the little chessboard. Yes, yeah. That was an Ian McCaig piece. And so over the years I lost touch with him until I saw his name on the credits for the film Hook. And then as the Star Wars prequels came out, Ian McCaig was, his name was all over the place and he is like this superstar at Lucasfilm. Yeah. Uh, and I still keep in touch with him now with his daughter Mishi and son Inigo you know we still talk quite often yeah uh, and uh, for me um, as well as his contributions to uh, White Dwarf uh, we would uh, also uh, try and copy the uh, cover from Broadsword uh, Jethro Tull's album uh, which is uh, one of my favourite uh, favourite of his uh, uh, illustrations well Dirk you're not alone again one of the cool things is when Ian was doing the illustrations for Broadsword and the Beast, uh, Ian Anderson used to, Ian Anderson, the lead singer of Jethro Tull, used to come along uh, and do like sessions with Ian to get the design right, mm -hmm. to get the band members on the inside fold on each corner, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. really hands on. And so I actually got to meet him, which was a bit scary, because mm. Jethro Tull was and is one of my all time favorite bands from that period. And Ian had done a concept sketch for Beastie, which was the original title for the album. And he'd thrown it away. And I said to him, Ian, can I have that for my brother? He loves Jethro Tull more than me. And so Ian signed it from the bin to Tim, uh, signed Ian McCaig. And it's like, you know, that may be worth money now, but Johnny would never sell it. It's too personal. It's too, too cool. So at this time then... Um uh, Ian Livingstone, of course, would have been editing White Dwarf. Would he, did he do that from the Dallin Road? Uh, yeah, all of that well? was done upstairs. The the typesetting, the illustrations, uh, everything upstairs. It was like a real hub of activity upstairs because people would send in submissions. Uh, customers would bring in their latest RuneQuest adventure or, you know, Empire of the Pedal Throne characters. They would bring in things hoping to get it published. Um, it was exciting the, the first few years because it was all there, all at Dowling Road. So just describe to us uh, the store uh, and what, we, what we'd find there. If we walked in there, went to the time machine and walked through the doors now, just describe what we would see in there. Well, basically it's down a, a little nondescript road in Hammersmith, mm -hmm. uh, a big glass-fronted building, just two stories, and you would walk in and the entire store was just games and i'm talking about I don't, i'm sure you know steve and ian used to actually hand make wooden games mm -hmm. the reason it's called games workshop is because they made chess sets and go and backgammon in a little flat in shepherd's bush mm -hmm. and it was just everywhere games and then a massive glass cabinet filled with painted figures and then behind the counter just hundreds of little drawers which is how they sold the figures back then. Yes. So there was no blister packs. No. This was somebody came in and they were looking for elves. You gave them a tray of elves and they chose the ones they liked. Yeah. I remember in Manchester there was a glass cabinet and you had to uh, take the code to the uh, counter and ask for the code. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so was it a similar arrangement in... Uh, in well, no, the because the store was so small. Right. Um, basically, I would stand behind the counter yeah. And quite a lot of the times, because remember this is early days, that we would have an incredible Saturday, but weekdays were quite slow. Yes. So a lot of the times it was just me downstairs. 
which was fine. Um, so that's how I started painting figures. Right. Because I was desperate to get our figures painted for the cabinet, mm -hmm. and I didn't have enough artists bringing work in, so I had to teach myself. So that's why I refer to myself as a craftsman, not an artist, because I had to really work at it. Yeah. So, but yeah, then upstairs it was the offices. Yeah. And Steve and Ian and Albie and uh, I think three or four other guys all do in production. So, yeah. always very busy upstairs. Yeah. And uh, some of those uh, in this in this podcast, we're talking about some of those early sculpts that um, Citadel uh, did. Are there any that you particularly remember from remember painting back then? Um. Yes, I think there's a, an issue of White Dwarf. It has to, one of my high points is I had a double-page spread in White Dwarf oh. uh, in an issue, I think it's in the 60s, 66 or 65, that featured my work from the cabinet. Oh. And there was, a, there was a giant holding a rock in his hand oh. with a bear that stood alongside yes, it. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I think that was probably my favorite figure to paint. That and dragons. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, some of my early, earliest uh, ones, I, I remember the RuneQuest uh, box sets of the uh, miniatures. They were my favourite. And that's how I got into The Hobbit, actually. I was drawn towards the figures, although we never used them now, but uh, back then it was the... Uh, oh, was yeah, the, the Brew were my favourite to paint. Yeah. I used to absolutely love that. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was. It was one of those things where when customers entered the store... They were just like surrounded by things they loved. Yeah. So they would come in and sometimes spend two or three hours talking about games, you know, talking about figure painting. Yeah, it was a, just a really great place to hang out. And those people who came in, because obviously the uh, hobby was fairly new, and I suppose over that period that you were working there, you saw it grow. Who were those early people? Where, where did they come from? They were either gamers. Yeah. who lived locally yeah. or they were some of the school kids who went to some of the posh schools in the area right so yeah. i had a friend called ian westbrook well still a friend um who came to work from me for me he lived in fulham so he traveled in and out but yeah there were local schools where we had like the saturday boys who would come and work all the really into gaming um yeah i mean it, it was they started as employees and ended up as friends and I think that early days of Games Workshop, that was the strength. And we should also thank Ian, because Ian was the matchmaker who brought us together, wasn't he? So thank you, Ian. For that. Yeah, he rocks. <laughs> and so um, you, over that period then, so how long were you working there for the tech team? It was from 1979 until... Until 1991. Right, OK. So you've seen a big change in the... Uh, uh, company in that time so just talk us through how you saw it change from that kind of cottage industry to you know what it became at the end of the uh, 80s okay um, like I said when I started in 79 it was the single store yeah. uh, over the next few years they ended up opening I think five stores in total it was still quite a, a small growth and then fighting fantasy came out yeah. so there was a lot of money because Steve and Ian made a lot of money off those, invested quite a bit of it back into Games Workshop. Mm. Uh, so they continued to grow. So in 1984, no, 1985, I moved to Manchester 
and took over as head of retail. So the five stores were mine to, to run. Mm-hmm. So I used to travel around the country going to the different stores, you know, sitting in on games, doing painting, uh, which was great. And then in 1986, um, Tom Kirby, who at the time was a financial director, I think mm-hmm. I think he's still with them, but he has a different title now. But he came up to Manchester with Brian Ansell mm-hmm. because Brian Ansell, who is the just uber being from Citadel, who had was probably the most creative person I've ever met in my life, and also one of the friendliest. Um, he came up, and they said, sat down, took me out for lunch, and said we want to open up in the US, would you like to go? And because I'm a dual national, because I have both passports and always have, mm-hmm. uh, it was an easy option because I could go back to the States and start working straight away. Right. So in 86 I went and we opened our first store in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was with them for another five years before I moved on and went to write for a company called Task Force Games, who do Starfleet Battles. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's interesting you uh, describe uh, Brian Ansel in that way, because obviously those role players always um, kind of portray him in our imagination as some kind of enemy because uh, of the move towards Warhammer and squeezing out of uh, role playing. So it's quite interesting to hear him described in that way. I think because I have such a love for figures. Yes. I mean, let me tell you a story about the early days. Because mm-hmm. you asked me earlier about like any favourite sculpts that I had. The Perry twins used to come down to London all the time to show figures to Steve and Ian. Yeah. And it was funny because at the beginning there were these two little shy twins who used to come down with matchboxes and open them up and there'd be the little greens inside the original sculptures. And... We made friends. They used to come and stay at our place when they were down in London. And my brother said to Alan, I think, he was following a comic in the States called Cerebus the Aardvark, right? Which was one of these black and white comics that hit in the early 80s. Uh, And he asked him if he would do a Cerebus the Aardvark figure for him. Right. And they said, sure. So the next time they came down, they had a green of the Aardvark. And I said... I'd just seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I went, how about doing an Indiana aardvark with a whip? And it was so close back then that it was like, sure, I'll do that for you. But I think I've always just loved figures and painting figures. Mm -hmm. Even now, I'll go into a games workshop, and although I haven't played Warhammer in in quite a few years, I can walk around a store for two hours just just looking at the, the, the just brilliance and artistry that these sculptors have to do these figures. Although I have to be honest, it's a bit annoying because whenever I go in, they always approach me and say, so what army unit are you painting today? Yeah. Is this your first one? Yeah. I'm like, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, did, um, when, what was the point in when that change was made? So you said that you pinpointed the... Um, uh, fighting fantasy things is that when uh, is that when the kind of um, editorial bits of uh, uh, games workshop moved out to Dallin Road well they'd moved out a bit earlier yeah um, just because as games workshop grew the warehouse grew mm-hmm. uh, and it was too small at Dowling Road 
for the people they needed. So they moved out, well, early 80s. And I think the thing is, Fighting Fantasy took the world by storm. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, even now, they're just doing reissues of all the classics. You know, it's all... It's still a big thing because new audiences are finding it. Yeah, and I believe, in, I believe Ian Livingstone's writing uh, a new one. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is one of those. Say, this is my memory of it. So it might not follow exactly what happened, mm. but when Fighting Fantasy took over and was so large, and Stephen Ian began to kind of step back a bit, mm. I think that's when Brian came in mm. with his vision, mm-hmm. and his vision was very different than Stephen Ian's because they were avid gamers you know in that Dowling Road store there were war games and board games and card games and role-playing games after Brian Ansel came in there were games workshop games so it was and then Warhammer Mm -hmm. and so then it became Warhammer everywhere with some other games on the lower shelves so I think that's where people they saw a real change in the early 80s and I think that's that's the way I saw it yeah so yeah, I think uh, there's a bit of nostalgia around it as well, isn't it? Because I think uh, uh, it, it's that it, 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 it was that thing where there was an explosion of uh, new things coming out all of the time, and then it moved to this kind of uh, monoculturalism of uh, Warhammer uh, in, 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 in the uh, late '80s. So I think there was a bit of nostalgia to it. So when you when you uh, when you you moved on. Uh, Tim, what kind of things do you do now? Are you still gaming now? Well, I tell you, one of the reasons I left Games Workshop is because ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to write. So I never wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to write. So yes. in my school years, I wrote for the you know the local newspapers. I lived in Berlin at the time, and I wrote for the Berlin Observer covering sports, anything to write and be published. And I had the opportunity with Task Force Games, the Starfleet Battles people, to write their role-playing game for Starfleet Battles uh, called Prime Directive, which came out in the early 90s. And it was it was a chance, although I still love the figures and still painted, it was something I had always dreamt of doing. So for five years, I had the job where my business card said writer, and it was like, this is where I wanted to be. Yes. Yeah. So, and that was the reason I left. Yeah. So, And I think, you talk about nostalgia, is I think... A lot of people, they look back at a time in their life and it's like they look at it through rose-colored glasses, mm-hmm. but it, I don't. It really was that good in the beginning. Yeah. It really was that close. Uh, but I think it's like anything, the larger it gets, the more fragmented you get. Yes. So, so I can't blame anyone for it because it, it became a worldwide institution. Yes. But uh, back in the day, when there was just the one store, you know, it was, yeah, it was Nirvana for games. Well, thanks for that, uh, Tim. And we're going to come back and I've got a table here with, uh, your, I'm going to call it the Anecdotometer. And you're going to give us five uh, choice anecdotes uh, when I roll on a D20. So until then, thanks a lot. Well, thank you very much, Dirk. The White Dwarf. Small but perfectly formed. Miniatures in White Dwarf. Okay, so these days White Dwarf magazine is all about miniatures, or minis, as I believe the kids call them. 
But what about back in the dim and distant past? During those heady days when White Dwarf was, whisper it, still an RPG magazine. Well, it turns out that when you look back, miniatures have always been a key feature of White Dwarf magazine. Collecting them, painting them, and yes, gaming with them. And when you think about it, it's not really so surprising. White Dwarf was launched as a response to the burgeoning newfound popularity of Dungeons and & Dragons. And what was Dungeons & Dragons? Well, the answer was right there on the box. Rules for fantastic medieval war games. Campaigns playable with paper and pencil and miniature figures. The evolution of role-playing games out of war games meant that there was always an association with miniatures. In the 1970s and 80s, whenever RPGs, and invariably it was D&D, were depicted in adverts, news articles, even the occasional TV spot, games always featured figures on the tabletop. Even now, the association remains a strong one. When the makers of the hit TV series, Stranger Things, needed a shorthand to portray young protagonists of the show as role players, they were shown playing D&D with miniatures. With a 1984 Demigorgon figure from Grenadier, no less. The rules for these early games were a confused mixture of Theatre of the Mind and Miniature War Game. My own initial experience with the home's basic D&D rules was no exception. As I read those wonderful rules for the first time, I realised that this was a game you played in your head. But at the same time, miniatures were somehow a required part of the experience. It was right there on page 5 in the second paragraph of the introduction. It is possible for the characters of each player to be represented by miniature-led figures. Using them made the game more exciting and spectacular. But how exactly? There was no further mention of the figures in the rest of the book. Above all, though, these fantastical figures were just great things to have. I think they embodied the promise of RPGs, the chance to bring these adventurers and monsters thrillingly to life. But back to White Dwarf. Miniatures first appeared way back in issue two, with Ian Livingstone reviewing the latest offerings. We're Rats to Wizards, from Asgard Miniatures, a UK company run by one Brian Ansell, a name we'll encounter several times more in our little history. Back in those early days, there was something of a Wild West field, with many small figures companies vying for attention. As well as the aforementioned Asgard, there were also Archive Miniatures, Grenadier, Ralpartha and others, all producing figures. These were sometimes weird, spaced-out druids, drunken gnolls, sometimes wonderful, balrogs, evil wizards, and sometimes a little basic. Yes, Chunky Anvar, I'm looking at you. The slaughter base wasn't even a twinkle in Brian Ansell's eye at this point. Figures were moulded from lead with incorporated bases. 
but they were obviously popular. In issue 7, White Dwarf introduced Molten Magic, a dedicated column rounding up all the new figure releases. And if that wasn't enough, for the more adventurous enthusiast, issue 8 featured the article Monster Modelling, with step-by-step instructions on how to build your very own carrion crawler. Adverts from all the miniatures companies were now a mainstay of the magazine. I remember being intrigued by Ralph Parther's advert for the complete box games featuring their figures, with exciting names like Caverns Deep and Galactic Grenadiers. I have recently been told via Twitter that these games and the figures they contained were rather underwhelming. Another childhood desire shattered. Eventually, though, out of all of these early contenders in the fantasy figures market, one company emerged to overshadow the others. One company to rule them all. One company to find them. One company to bring them all and in the darkness, well, Nottingham, bind them. The creation of Citadel Miniatures was first announced in a full-paged advertisement in White Dwarf issue 11. The new company, forged from a partnership between Games Workshop and Brian Ansell, would distribute Ralph Arthur Miniatures in the UK, but also produce their own lines of figures. Needless to say that these figures were heavily advertised in the magazine, and to be fair, they looked great. Indeed, from issue 17 onwards, Citadel got their own special regular page, nestled right next to the Ian Livingstone's editorial. A number of these Citadel pages are firmly lodged in my memory. The Dungeon Map advert, a fearsome mini-dungeon with giant spiders, fierce ogres and, um those drunken gnolls. The announcements of box sets of Traveller and RuneQuest figures. An advert for an endless, nightmarish zombie horde. Before long, even in those classic RPG days, Games Workshop, Citadel Miniatures and White Dwarf were all inextricably linked. From my own perspective, buying and collecting miniatures was exciting. As I said earlier, it seemed to be an integral part of the gaming experience. I bought many figures back in the day. I think that was partly down to my good old friendly local games shop. They had a glass display case at one end of the counter, packed with tempting miniatures. The game is equivalent of sweets at the supermarket checkout. These always caught my eye whilst waiting to pay for the latest supplement I persuaded my parents to get for me. Mum, I really need the Queen of the Demon Web Pits. I need it. And they were at pocket money prices. So, as well as that new module, I could also buy myself a doughty fighter or a scimitar-wielding hobgoblin to add to my collection. Often, after having first seen the figure in the news pages of White Dwarf. And as Citadel rose to prominence, I also bought some of their box sets. The RuneQuest Monster set was a must-have. I've spoken before about the distinctiveness of Ruglaranthian monsters, 
and this set contained some great sculpts. The trolls were ugly, the manticore fierce, the duck oddly tragic, the jackal bear spindly and threatening. Many a RuneQuest game was enhanced by just having these guys around the tabletop to add atmosphere. I was never really convinced by the brew though, difficult to achieve in a 25mm I suppose, but they never looked very pestilential. To me they were just too healthy and well fluffy. The box sets of traveller figures looked very exciting the first time I saw them advertised. The box art featured a number of far-future hipster adventurers standing around looking cool. At least that's how they seemed in the early 80s. And the array of models sounded impressive. I'm pleased to say that they didn't disappoint. Of the five sets produced, I bought the Adventurers and the Citizens boxes. I remember that overall they packed an amazing level of detail into those 15mm figures. All the good stuff you'd expect to see in Traveller miniatures. Vac suits, survival dress, a wide range of weaponry, noble adventurers, low-life citizens, were all present and correct. And of course, the citizens box set included the android female companion. Her charms in 15mm were presumably just small enough not to catch my parents' disapproval. The other Citadel box set I had was the speciality set, the Dwarf King's Court, Dwarven royalty and their retinue, along with Cyril the Bear and Corbett Shortstuff, the Gnome Jester. All great models. I've got a bit of a soft spot for dwarves, me. Although I don't remember ever using them in a game. A bit of trivia. UK listeners of a certain vintage may remember the offbeat TV art show south of Watford from the 1980s, particularly the episode where comedian Ben Elton investigates role-playing games. The sight of Ben waving around the Chaosium RuneQuest box is one of the more incongruous images of that decade. Anyway, Ben joins a game of D&D with Ian Livingstone, Steve Jackson and Albie Foray, and plays a female dwarf. This being the 80s, they play with miniatures, and Ben's character is represented by Queen Hazabel Dragonsmiter herself, from the Dwarf King's Court. It's available on YouTube. Rounding off the box sets I've loved and lost are two from Grenadier. The AD&D Monster set, and the Dragon's Lair. The monster set was a rather eclectic selection of variable quality. The goblins were rather underwhelming, but the type 6 demon was great, as was the yeti. No horns, you'll note. The ochre jelly, though, was basically just a big fat splat of lead. The dragon's lair promised much to my teenage mind. My very own smog atop his treasure hoard. Only one problem, this was a big lead model that required assembly. And try as I might, despite my many attempts and lots and lots of tubes of araldite, he never held together for very long. 
It's difficult to live up to your reputation as the last great fire drake of the age and strike terror into the hearts of adventurers when your wings keep falling off. Anyway, White Wolf, one thing that really strikes you when you look back at the adverts and features on miniatures in those early issues is that the details of the figures can be difficult to make out. There were clearly problems with photographing lead figures, so much so that sometimes drawings of figures were used in preference to actual photographs. What the figures in White Wolf really needed was a splash of colour. Figure painting tips in White Wolf also go way back, starting with the saucily titled Colouring Conan's Trues in issue 3. But the first article I remember that introduced techniques like washes and dry brushing was The Magic Brush by Sean Fuller. It ran across issues 17 and 18, although I first encountered it in the Best of White Wolf articles compilation. And to my teenage self, it was all a bit daunting, if I'm honest. Picking out features on a 25mm figure, like robe cuffs and sword bindings between the figure's lips for heaven's sake with a black outline just seemed impossibly difficult and as for picking at the pupils in their eyes well i tried i really did there were a few tins of umbral lying about in the house so after dutifully reading the magic brush a couple of times i slapped on some paint in my figures but the results of my meagre painting skills were underwhelming, and in trying to pick up their pupils, I seemed to turn each miniature into a boss-eyed zombie. I just didn't have the temperament or the patience for figure painting, or any discernible artistic talent. In the end, I think my most accomplished paint job was that damn ochre jelly. Open box! Open Box is part of the show where we look back so we can look forward. I'm here in the room of role-playing rambling with my esteemed co-host Blythe. Hello Blythe. Hello Dirk. Now what I've got is I've got these special rose-tinted glasses for you to wear. I'm going to put them on as well. There you go. How does that look? Um, rose-tinted. It looks brilliant, doesn't it? A land of milk and honey. Yes, the past. The past, the glorious past. I don't like honey and I'm a bit lactose intolerant. <laughs> but that, so what we do in this section of the show, we look back on our origins and uh, consider uh, how, how, what impact it had and understand how it shaped the way that we play today. So this time we're going to look at Games Workshop and Citadel Miniatures in particular. We're going to look at now and how role-playing paraphernalia uh, how we use that and how mm. that uh, shapes mm. our game. Uh, the, the tabletop clutter and setting things out on the table compared with theatre of the mind. Theatre of the mind. Theatre like of the mind, yes. Okay, let's um, start at the beginning because mm. we never tire of telling our story, do we, of uh, how we got started? Because during this podcast. Well, I'm no, because we're middle aged men. We never tire of talking about our past. Yeah. Because that's all we've got to look forward to. There's a likely lads theme tune. That's all we've got to look forward to, isn't it? The past yeah. is all we've got to look forward to. This is where Citadel Miniatures come in because mm. they were the 
thing that lured is in, wasn't it? Well, they were, yeah, because we would go to the, the toy shop, wouldn't we, in Bolton? We must have been about 12. We were yeah. about 12, I think. Citadel miniatures were, were on sale there, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, and at first, they were, they were slightly puzzling things. They were, they were quite attractive, weren't they? We were attracted to them because they were odd little metal miniatures of, yeah. um, you know, goblins and what have you. And, and also of things we didn't understand. I think the first Citadel miniature I bought was called Advancing Salamander. Advancing, Advancing Salamander. Yeah. Uh, and it was a salamander with a sword and shield, I think. Uh, and we had to look it up in an encyclopedia. What's, what's a salamander? Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was a salamander with a lizard. It, did, it still didn't make much sense because no. it's a lizard with a sword and a shield. What's yeah. this for? We what's, did. It, what's its purpose? Because everything else, of course, that you bought, so you, you, know, you would buy, if you bought toy soldiers or Star Wars figures, it was a figure of something that made sense, you know, yeah. it was plastic hand solo, but advancing salamander, what was that? So these, no the, these curious little things in mm. little bags, they were, like a, they, they were like a puzzle to be unlocked, and they used to be stored, didn't they, near the paint, because at that time, if you remember, I had this uh, great idea that I was going to make a film of Nemesis the Warlock. And I yes. was scratch building. You're gonna buy gonna buy a cine camera at fifty uh, p a month for the rest of your natural life from my mother's catalogue. Little Woods catalogue. Yeah, from it? You still be paying for it now if you do that. And I had this idea that I build the Blitz Spear, uh, scratch build it, and I used to go. And then we got distracted by these figures, didn't yeah. we? And we looked at them. Thankfully, we were distracted by something slightly more plausible. <laughs> But the, um, they, they were curious little items, mm. and they, it, like you said, they had like um, uh, strange names. And I think next time we'll look at, at some of those mm. figures in a bit more and, detail. And the, and the odd thing was that they weren't near. Well, I say odd. It wasn't odd because I don't think the, the, the ladies in the game in, in Boydell's toys knew what role playing games were, and I don't think they knew what Citadel miniatures were for. But they weren't near the games, were they? So. No. You know, role-playing games themselves were, were sort of rammed in with other board, board games. So RuneQuest was, you know, Sandwich between Panzer Tank Commander and the Battle of Gettysburg, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and Citadel miniatures weren't anywhere near the games. No. So you didn't make a connection that they were for games. That, that didn't enter our head. And the packaging of Citadel, the little packets, again, there was no... It didn't say, for use with... D&D or for use with something as, as no. far as I can remember it didn't no, say no, that it, didn't, no. it just says Citadel miniatures and that little tower little tower yeah. logo that they had but there was no connection between the two things so they were they were mysterious and I think we bought them we, we started collecting them didn't we for a, probably a good six months or so before we got into role playing games yeah, it could have even been a bit longer it was the box sets wasn't it of mm. uh, RuneQuest box sets that allowed us to, to make, make the connection, connection between the, this, this game called RuneQuest and these figures, and then making the connection that maybe all these figures were for these games. kind of games. Yes. Yeah, 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 and it made sense. But up to that point, no, it, it, they were that was part of the attraction in a way. Yes, they, they didn't. They seemed like they were like toys, but not like toys. It was like being slightly more grown up. Oh, they're not toys, they're collectibles. There's a collectible thing, isn't it, this advancing yeah. salamander? You know, and it never crossed our mind to paint them. No. It never never for a second did we think you were supposed to paint them. There was just like it was, it's like the idea and, that yeah, they were yeah. silver metal figures was in the in its own right was, was what we were after. I don't know. Strange, strange thing, but yeah. yeah, we didn't make that connection. 
When we eventually did start uh, playing the games and making that connection, um, what we what we did was, um, you know, what struck us immediately about these games was that it was a game without a board. Yeah. So we did the best we could to create a board. I mean, maybe that wouldn't be such a... I suppose that wouldn't be such a strange concept to people who are into traditional wargaming, would it? No. Thinking no. about it now. No. It wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a strange concept. So if you were into wargaming and you made your little you know, bombed out houses and had your little soldiers and your hills and your lichen trees and all that kind of thing. I suppose that's what they're used to. But again, from our point of view, because we weren't from a wargaming background, yeah. we weren't really even from a gaming background, were we? No. I mean, we weren't really into games. No. We, we, went, we were burgeoning filmmakers. We, we wanted to make... We didn't have a camera. That, and I suppose that's what... Without being too pretentious about it, that's kind of what RuneQuest... That, First of allowed us to do, didn't it? It allowed us to make a film yeah. in your head. And Games Workshop at the time used to furnish you with all kinds of uh, material to uh, create a board, didn't they? So yeah. the yeah. dungeon floor plans, we collected yeah, dungeon, those. The dungeon floor plans, yeah. 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 Those pads, I, you know, you had to have uh, wilderness hex sheets and uh, squares for your dungeon That planning. was the rule. Yeah, you couldn't, couldn't Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't possibly. The right. wilderness was hexes and dungeons yeah. and squares. Couldn't, 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 couldn't do it the other way. Do it any other way. It wasn't yeah. allowed. It wasn't right, was it? Joining. Right. No. <laughs> couldn't have a hexagonal dungeon. And uh, there's traveller pads as well. Yeah, know. the starship uh, floor plans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember piecing those together and building a really big. Mm. Yeah. You used to do that, didn't you? And we got, we did get, we really got into that, didn't we? Because we we started collecting the figures even more so then. Once we knew what they were for. Um, and we got the box sets. I got box sets of RuneQuest, and I remember getting all the box sets of the Traveller miniatures for Christmas one year. The whole yeah, lot. Yeah, I think we've spoken about those, haven't we? Mm. They were key to us understanding the game, weren't they? Mm. And then painting them as well. We got into painting them and everything. But yeah. we had a lot of time in those days. Yeah. I'm not sure I got the time now. No. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's. That that's true, isn't it? When I think about it now, and I think about the thought of uh, painting miniatures, it's that commitment of time, mm, yeah, and it's that model making impulse that I just don't think I have. Mm. Um, I don't think I've got the patience yeah. or the diligence to kind of sit there producing these models. And I think mm. uh, that I I look at I look at what people do, and I am impressed by them. Oh yeah, there's a lot of yeah, there is a lot of impressive stuff out there now that you just... I mean, I was a bit more into it than you, I think, painting miniatures, yeah. I remember. Um, and I, I used to think I was quite good at it until... <laughs> until I've seen some of the stuff on the internet. I'm, I'm a bit rubbish, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm not very good at it at all. Yeah. But, well, I think, but I think you're right. The, the thing now, certainly now... Um, the idea of sitting there painting miniatures, I just don't have the time. It would it would mean less time gaming yeah. and less time preparing for games when I'm games mastering. Yeah. And and I'm not sure I'm really prepared to do that. Where you uh where you spent the time uh, doing the figures, it my thing was drawing the plans yes, for the like drawing the plans and uh you know, getting uh, graph paper, and I think I've told this story mm. many times that I, uh, when we got Apple Lane, it said that you required uh, butcher paper to draw <laughs> the plans of uh, Grindel's Pawn Shop on. I didn't know what butcher paper was, I thought it was some kind of fantasy term. 
you know, that, you know, you were going to get butchered. You were going to get butchered. Yeah, butchered frequently we did. <laughs> yeah, you were going to get butchered. And that's what it's for. It's not it's to do with butchers. No, it's, it's just it's just brown paper, it turns out. But nobody knew what they were. Well, they wrapped me sausages, it? Yeah. Is that how it is? That is it, yeah. And okay. it's available in craft shops, but I didn't know at that time. They didn't so. have craft shops in those days. It was the 80s. It was a ridiculous concept. It, there was no such thing as a craft shop in the 80s, was it? If there no. was, they were few and far between. You know, hobby craft and places like that. No, they craft beers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bit like sticky back plastic, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a bit like one of those things that, in just to digress, Blue Peter, they'd say, oh, get some sticky back plastic and get some of this and get some of that. And you think, where do I get this from? Yeah, they, always, they always said craft shops. Where were these craft shops? <laughs> they were none in Bolton. I mean, yeah. I, mean I know it's a bit of a backwater, but they were none in Bolton, no. to my memory. You had WH Smiths, that's all you had. And you'd ask them, they'd look at you like you were insane if you asked for a sti- sticky back plastic. Yeah. Like you were mad. Oh, another one been in. Wants to build Tracy Island and Blue Pizza. When I look at it, when I look at it now, and uh, look, there was a break, wasn't there? There was a break that we made with miniatures that we just stopped using them completely. Mm, yeah, we did. But what point was that? When, when, when do you think it was? Well, I think, I think there were two things that stopped us using miniatures as I remember. I think one thing that was quite instrumental is Call of Cthulhu. Mm. Because when we, Call of Cthulhu did, there were, I think there were a range of miniatures, but they were, they were difficult to get hold of and they weren't particularly um, extensive. So I think there was like, you know, adventure, some investigators, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But you couldn't get miniatures for all the monsters and all the, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think when we started playing Call of Cthulhu, we just played it without miniatures and, and realised that you, you, you could play it without miniatures perfectly successfully, perfectly enjoyably, and it, yeah. it, it didn't detract from anything. Yeah. I think that had something to do with it. So I think Call of Cthulhu was instrumental. And I think the other thing was, for me anyway, it was the constant sense of compromise using miniatures and dungeon floor plans. So you never had six zombies. You had three zombies and you had to use a wolf and a giant spider or something like that, yeah. something else. And yeah. you'd go, oh, no, I haven't got six zombies or I haven't got seven hobgoblins. So it, four hobgoblins, you know, a, a, a dire wolf and uh, oh, let's just use this treasure chest here. And you, you sort of thought that the, the purpose of dungeon floor plans and figures to bring it alive but it actually did the opposite it yeah. detracted from it because you, you were fighting a treasure chest or you were fighting the dire wolf when it should have been a hobgoblin yeah the, the, very, very much so and I think um, I agree with you I think Call of Cthulhu was probably part of it but I think it was earlier than that yeah. uh, I think there were points weren't there where we realised that we weren't referring to what was on the table yes that's true we, know, got, we got carried away with the combat for example, and realised that several rounds had passed and we hadn't moved a figure, we hadn't moved a miniature, we hadn't moved anything. Yeah. So you don't think, mm, what are we bothering for? Yeah. yeah. I think it comes down to that thing, isn't it? You know, that it, it is that dichotomy between miniatures and the tabletop and the theatre of the mind. Because it the is. Theatre of the mind, yes. It, it's, quite, it's quite different, isn't it? But I think you're right, there is all that thing with substitution. So, you know, you're always making compromises, mm. you know. It's like when you used to cut the um, dungeon floor plans and yes. you were making a commitment. Yes. Right, I'm yeah. going to get my scissors. That's to cut true, them. yeah. You would buy dungeon floor plans. 
and you'd open the box and you'd think, right, okay, these, these floor plans need cutting into shapes. Now, do I, on the one hand, wait and cut the specific shape for the specific dungeon? But then I might not be able to use that again. Or do I cut them into random, fairly useful shapes that are, you know, big room, little room, very little room, medium-sized room, long corridor, short corridor, very short corridor, that kind of thing. And I, I remember doing that and thinking, right, okay, I've got a good array of rooms here. Yeah. But then, ironically, when we played, I would think, oh, yeah, well, a room that's quite the right size here, that's too big. That's too yeah. big, but I don't want to cut it in half because and that's, that's a bit too small. And, Mm, oh, well, it's a bit like this. And again, it was that compromise of yeah. this thing's supposed to bring it alive, and yet everything on the table in front of you is actually not quite how you like, want it to be. <laughs> quite how you want it to be. Yeah. And I think we've got used to it, and particularly as we've returned to the game and we've been playing um, uh, as adults mm. and play, playing all this, is that thing, isn't it, where. You do the description of the worm. You can hear the bellow yes. down the corridors yeah. and the sulphurous stench mm. coming up the corridor mm. as you're kind of approaching. And it's horrific roar and you can see its scales ripple and you put, uh, I don't know, a baboon figure on the yeah, table. Yeah, a baboon so, on, yeah. Yeah, yeah a giant um, snake. Well, it's not a giant snake, it's got wings and everything. It's like an Ivan. Oh, it's, yeah, use giant snake. It's about right. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it kind of miniaturizes it and brings it down and I think Eddie always says this doesn't he when we yeah. do it with Cthulhu you know it kind of takes you out of the moment and back into yeah. the reality so yes. the things that are in your head yes. disappear almost disappear, where you yes, become they do. overly fastidious about your positioning on the table yeah yeah and and whilst I mean we've played we've started playing on Roll20, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and that has tokens and maps. And there are pluses to having miniatures and maps and things because things like range and movement start to play a part. Yeah. So if you're at some distance from an opponent, then you do have to do, use the movement rates and say, ah, right, well, it's going to take two rounds to get to yeah. and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, there's something to be said, isn't there, for that sense of tension that, okay, you know, compare the two compare the two instances. On the one hand, saying, okay, uh, there's this monster, there's this, again, let's say this is a direwolf or something, snarling, slavering direwolf comes charging towards you, it's going to be on you in one round, what are you going to do? You've only got one round, what are you going to do? That kind of tension. And using figures where you go, okay, Here's the slavering, snarling direwolf. Now, its movement rate is 40. Uh, now, it's running, that's, ooh, that's 80. Okay, so that's eight squares. Yeah. And you're going to have two and a half. Ooh, ah, right. And it, it, you say it immediately slows everything down. Now, there's an argument for using miniatures because you could say that's fairer. Because yeah. it, it accounts for people's position. It accounts as for people's movement. As a rules lawyer. I would. Which, would apparently, that. I am. <laughs> You could say that's a better way to do it. It's a fair way to do it. But from a dramatic point of view, then talking about it, describing it, has more pace, it has more action, it has more of a sense of drama about it. And I think we found that, and that's why we, we drifted away from miniatures. Yeah, but yeah. Isn't, isn't it having a peculiar effect on us playing Storm King's Thunder mm. on uh, Roll20? Because 
This is a virtual tabletop, a virtual space. And whether it's because of D&D um, &D 5th Edition's tactical rules yeah. and combat rules, whether it just seems to work really well. Yeah. And I don't know, it, you, you probably did notice that when we played uh, <laughs> Mithras at Convergence, mm. And we played the Luther Arkwright game. I created counters yeah, to show where they yeah. And I've not done that for no, years. No, no, years. No. And I think it is from that thing of using mm. Roll20 because it, I've been aware that it affects your tactical decisions yes. when you're following the rules mm. of movement. Yes. Range, it's range and movement, isn't it? And yeah. position. So. If you're a magic user with a spell of 124 range, you, you sort of think, right, well, Mr. Direwolf, you can't get to me for two rounds, and that means you're going to get yeah. two magic missiles in your chops before you get to me. Whereas the other option, where the Games Master's been more fluid about it, you, you're a slight, a slight disadvantage, aren't yeah. you, arguably? Yeah. yeah, and I found that because mm. I've been able to protect my low-level magic yeah. user yeah. by just staying yeah. out of trouble and yeah. slinging stuff from yeah. a distance um, whereas if we were doing the talking theatre of the mind you, you'd get away <laughs> with as a dungeon master yeah. having stuff near me yes but another factor that we we don't have to consider is that when we played back in the day it was often me you and Eddie so yeah. it's one games master and two players and I think if you have one games master two players it's easy. It was often, you know, one one monster, two monsters, not much going on in terms of movement and range. Whereas on Storm Kings, there were six players. Now, the more players you have, I would say, the more of an inclination there is to have miniatures and counters and things because you lose track of where the hell people are. Yes. So that's yeah. a factor that we found it very easy to go down that uh, the, the theatre of the mind. Yeah, theatre of the theater mind, mind. Yeah. which I prefer the theatre of the mind because just like like you saying it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we went down that road and found that easier because the, we had relatively few players. I mean, there were there were some games. Let's face it, some Call of Cthulhu games, some RuneQuest games in the the mid to late eighties where it was one on one, wasn't yeah, it? it? So again, games, again, yeah. you've not got that problem of six brew, a couple of ogres some trolking, you know, yeah. a big combat where in a big combat you might think, well, actually, I need I need to know where everybody is. Yes. We all need to know where we are. We didn't have that problem because we just didn't have the players. And then that was a factor as well, yeah. you know. Now, we mentioned our uh, little backward... Backwater, I think you referred to as our hometown. Backwater, backwater, yeah, I did, didn't I? It's because they didn't have any craft shops. Yeah. But then did anywhere. I don't know. <laughs> And I'm saying it's a backwater because it didn't have craft shop. Seems a harsh judgment to make, really, doesn't it? But when, when it came to the serious stuff, a bit later, our uh, weekly pilgrimage to Manchester to go yeah. to Games Workshop mm. was very important. The to Metropolis. Us. The Metropolis. But they didn't have craft shops either. <laughs> I don't remember. Just as point of order, I don't remember craft shops in Manchester either, so there you go. You could arguably say that Games Workshop eventually turned into a craft shop. You could, couldn't you? <laughs> Did they sell sticky back plastic? Yeah, probably. Uh, Did they? No, they don't. But that, at that time when, uh, when, we, when we got into buying games and buying figures on, mm. a, on a regular basis, 
we were made that pilgrimage and it was a very special place to us uh, yes. Games oh, Workshop because yeah, yeah. you felt Absolutely. like even though we were on our own that you're actually among people who shared your, your own kind of common ground yeah well you were in half the shop weren't yes. you yes because <laughs> half the shop so on, <laughs> on the right as you walked in, in on the right yeah that, that would be the that's the the uh, role playing game section so it'd be shelves and shelves of role playing on the left it would be Trivial Pursuit and Jigsaws yeah like a Rubik's Cube and that kind of thing yeah, yeah. did you ever venture onto no, the left hand I don't think I ever wandered into that left hand back of the shop I, I never went I didn't want to be seen there no I didn't want to be seen there because I wanted to but I was a, an RPG gamer I was a proper gamer and the other half of the shop you could see you would see people walk in <laughs> they would be drawn to one side or the other so you get you get some people walking in <laughs> some old lady who wanted to buy a new jigsaw you go in and look at the right and think what, what you could see in the right what the hell's that what, what are all this weird all this weird stuff and they drift over to the left hand side yeah. to look at the jigsaw I did once go on to the left hand side to I flirted with the idea of getting a Frank Frazetta no, jigsaw I never liked jigsaws 70% of psychopaths and serial killers do jigsaws did you that, know that is that right no that's not true but it's very believable isn't it <laughs> You believed it. You instinctively believe that. And that says a lot about jigsaws. I think it says a lot about me. Um, (laughs) Possibly. I I think I also got, because they got into um, computer games, didn't they? And I bought Manic Miner, I think, from from there. And they had um, a glass case uh, at the back where they would have painted lead figures and you'd have to... Quote the uh, number, and they would get them out of drawers at the back yeah. and bring them. Uh, bring them well, it became our. I, I think <laughs> it was that thing when we were teenagers. We were like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and I suppose it was our our kind of subculture, wasn't it? Yeah, no, we weren't. We weren't. We weren't goths or mods or whatever else was. You know, we we, we were gamers, and we we'd go in and hang around a bit, and so right, we've been. We've made the pilgrimage. And we'd flick through, even if we didn't buy anything. I mean, yeah. often we would buy just a miniature because they were the cheapest yeah. thing going. You'd flick through a few supplements, look, knowing, stroke your chin, oh, well, this looks interesting, blah, 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 and then wander out. But I never went into the left-hand part, a bit of the shop. I might have done once. Yeah. Got uncomfortable. Yeah. No. So, because it was so formative to our identity as a space, mm. do you think that's why it hurt? And it hurts people so much that it changed its business model mm, yeah. and kind of left that behind yes. and became more of a model shop, a craft shop, if you like. Yeah, 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 that also yeah. sold games. Do you think that? I think that had something to do with it. I, I mean, it's it, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that this, this all happened before the internet, obviously. And so for us, Games Workshop was the was the gateway, was the conduit, was whatever you want to call it, for role-playing games, wasn't it? And when they stopped selling them, it felt... And this this probably sounds preposterous, it but it wouldn't be the first time, time in this podcast that I've said a preposterous thing, so yeah. I'll go with it. Yeah. It felt a bit like role-playing was over. It felt a bit yeah. like... Uh, role-playing's dead. And it's been taken over by tabletop gaming. That's what everyone wants to do. And it felt like, well, role-playing games sort of dying out. And of course it wasn't. 
there was a whole indie game explosion. There were loads the of games, 90s, actually. Yeah, of course there were. But without the internet, and, and I think, very, very importantly, we didn't really know any other gamers. No. We weren't part of a group. We weren't in co- contact with other gamers. And if we, if we were, we might have realised that, actually, role-playing games were alive and well. But it did feel like... A, a, is it too strong a word to say betrayal? Yeah. It yeah, felt like it's ridiculous now as grown men, but at the time, but when you were about 16, 17, it felt a little bit like a betrayal that Games Workshop that had presented to us all this wonderful stuff that we loved, that we really loved, had suddenly said, Do you know what? That stuff you love is a lot of rubbish, and we we're going to replace it with models and tabletop wargaming. Yeah. Which is, whichever way you look at it, isn't role playing? Yeah, I I think it, I, I'm not sure whether it was them or us because I think I it's more to do with us than them. To yeah. be fair, and that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying how it felt at the time. I'm not saying it's legitimate. I was thinking of yeah. uh, Alan Partridge when he says about the <laughs> Irish potato famine. Yeah, it's a price you pay if you're a fussy eater. Mm, you know, yes, we did get we did get all our games from one source, didn't we? Yes, we did. Absolutely, and all our information from one. Yeah, dwarf. and that was our mistake, really. Yeah. but we didn't have a wider net, did we? We didn't know anybody. Yeah. Or, you know, if we if we gone to some kind of if we gone to some kind of games club, um, where there were several other people, maybe some older people, they might have been, they might have said, oh, there's this, there's that, there's the other, but you couldn't go onto the internet and go. Um, Typing new RPGs or something like that, and f- yeah. just find it wasn't like that then. So thinking about it now, then how do you get your stuff? How do you buy your stuff? On the internet. On the internet, yeah. Because yeah. you you like the PDF, don't you? You you're a PDF user, aren't you? Well, I'm I'm a bit weird. I, I like I, I, really yeah yeah <laughs> hard hard that is to believe. I am a bit weird. I quite like buying the book and the PDF. I, I don't, it doesn't feel right. If it's a scenario or a campaign, I'll PDF fine, don't have a problem because that feels slightly more disposable. You know, you might run an adventure once or twice and that's it. But when it's a core rule book or a core supplement, I like having the PDF because they're quite easy to use and you've got indexing and, you know, sometimes it's easy to bring the laptop. So in that Numenera games, I'll bring the laptop, won't I? Yeah. and have all the books on the laptop it's easy than lugging them around yeah but I have got all the books yeah. I do like the books because sometimes it's nice to just flick through the book and have a browse and yeah. that, that monster manual flick through it and pick a monster that you're going to use is easier than looking at a PDF I think yeah it's interesting to say that because I find uh, that I'm at a complete loss when I go into a game shop I don't know what to do mm. I honestly don't know. I'm not talking about Games Workshop because you walk into a Games Workshop now, you've got ninety percent chance of being called Buddy. Yeah, we did once walk into Games Workshop. Do you remember when we were forty? Yeah, my fortieth birthday. Oh, yeah. We walked. We went in there. We had a game of Warhammer. We walked in and said, "You know, go on then." Yeah, yeah. Go I'm on. Not, I'm not your buddy. I'm not your buddy, and I'm but, not bitter, and I'm not. I don't feel a <laughs> sense of betrayal anymore because I've actually grown up. So I'm finally forty, and I've got a sense of perspective. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> almost. But uh, yeah, and, and the guy in there, we had a game of Warhammer forty thousand. And do you know what? We enjoyed. We quite enjoyed it. It's all right. Actually, enjoyed. <laughs> Take it back. Yeah. But even if I go into you know, um, Fanboy Three or yeah, Traveling yeah. Man, and I see all those spines mm. out there. I'm not sure what to do. Yes. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what I'm looking for. 
is it is it that is that uh, internet uh, experience of purchasing things has spoiled the serendipitousness of finding yeah. something new and unusual because mm. everything there just looks like everything everywhere <laughs> I know what you mean yeah it's yeah. Like, I just don't know what to do I don't, I don't know what to do and you know it's that thing where you know you flick through it and go oh yeah yeah well uh, what, yeah I know what you mean it's true that because I was in Travelling Man the other week in Manchester and I popped in and I did, I did do the same thing guys, where I popped in just to make my presence known and stood around the role playing game yeah. as if some badge of honour look at yeah. me I'm a gamer yeah. you, you no don't. one's looking at me no one gives a toss yeah. but I did that I looked at the thing, some things and thought oh well I've got those things then I looked at some other stuff but it was stuff I knew about anyway so I think that um, what was it I, I, some D&D stuff was there is it the yawning portal, the new, oh, one? Yeah, the new one? I looked, I thought, but, but I know about that. And I know what it is. But I picked it up and flicked through it, even though I know what it is. And then there was all the other stuff that I didn't know what it was, that I just looked at and thought, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And I'm not sure I want to. Yeah. And then I left. <laughs> but I do think it's good that you can see that the new generation of gamers are using game shops as their space, aren't they? Yes. So you see, yeah, like, yeah. Magic the Gathering yeah. players and... Mm. Uh, other players kind of claiming the yeah. space, and you can see that that's going to have. They have that relationship that we had yeah. uh, back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know what you mean. It's uh, yeah. But then I, you know me. I, I take the view that I, I'm not sure I want that many role playing games in my life. I, mm. I like to get a role playing game and, and bleed it dry. But I feel that I'm at that um, cusp at the moment of wanting something new. Mm. and interestingly I'm kind of filling that gap and that urge by buying uh, paraphernalia so I keep buying those all rolled up <laughs> dice bags yeah, yeah. to kind of satisfy the urge of getting yeah. something because I really like them uh, you know because you can put your dice in them you can put your pens in yeah. them and all, all your stuff and product I, placement that yeah it is <laughs> but I it, you know, I really, I really love them. I, I should balance it by saying product placement. But Eddie always says, oh, "Why don't it's just a glorified pencil case? Why don't you get a pencil case from Asda?" <laughs> but that's not the point, is it? Other supermarkets are available. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas there's only one wall, one. Uh, there's only one wall rolled up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's only one wall rolled up. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm kind of. I, it is that thing of um, you want to get stuff, don't you? And it, it is that thing of you know. No matter what you say, it's kind of asserting your presence yeah. in the hobby yeah. by getting stuff, isn't it? Well, it's like when I went to Dragon Meat, I bought some new dice. I don't need, I don't need any more dice. Yeah. I really don't need any more dice. But I can assure you, I will buy some. Yeah. Been travelling man the other week. I went. I did look at the dice. I always look at the dice and go, they're a nice colour. Yeah. Like them. So you, them. you feel this urge to mm. satisfy something within yeah, you. Yeah, it's like a consumerist thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it was all <laughs> embedded. By Games Workshop back when yeah, we were brainwashed, <laughs> brainwashed, <laughs> buying stuff, and that games. muscle memory keeps <laughs> yeah, coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, it does. Every time I try yeah, to get must out, buy new dice, must buy this supplement I'll never use. Every time I get out, try to get out, they keep <laughs> pulling me back. Pull in. you back in. Yeah, <laughs> you've got a lot to answer for here, Livingstone. <laughs> anyway, 
I think we'll leave that. I've got this great idea for a film based on Nemesis the Warlock. Oh, I think really? the time's come, so... Um, you can I mean, make that on your phone now, couldn't you? Of the times have changed. Yeah, so, so I'm going to make it. Mm, I think you should. Okay. An action man and wrap him in silver paper. I think that was the that yeah, was plan, well, wasn't it? Plan, yeah. yeah, make a conical silver paper hat and stick it on an action man, wrap him in silver paper so they look like Nemesis. Because he was all silver, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop motion anime. I think also I took, I was going to take the uh, hind legs off my um, sister's Barbie doll and stick them onto the action man. So, because he's got like hard hooves, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, he has, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh. And it all worked out. It, worked it could out. have been. Brother, what did we do? We ended could have been. It could, it could still be brilliant. It could still happen, couldn't it? Yeah. Are there any filmmakers out there who want to make Nemesis the Warlock, the movie? It's got a, it's got a target audience of at least me and you. Yeah, yeah. If no one else. <laughs> it could go down as like uh, Jodorowsky's uh, Dune as the great unmade film. <laughs> Until next time. See you later, bye then. Goodbye. There isn't another bit. I know I'm not alone in my love of those early Games Workshop stores. We'll all have our stories of those game shops and the influence they had on our formative years. I'd love to collect your stories for a special postbag next time. Stories like this one from Steve Rumney. Like the armchair adventurers, I hail from the northwest of England but from an even northier and westier place, as I lived in the smallest town in the Cumbrian coast, called Whitehaven. In October 1984, one of the job centre's cards was advertising a clerical officer job at the Home Office in that there London. I didn't hold any misconceptions about my chances. They aren't really looking for me, I told myself, but if I can at least get an interview in London, at the taxpayer's expense, I could get there early enough I might get a visit to Games Workshop on One Dalling Road, Hammersmith. So I applied and my handwriting must have been neat because I got an interview, and quickly too. So I was bathed, combed and smartly shod in my best only suit and a good raincoat and standing on Carlisle Station waiting for a train to London. I got to Euston at about midday and my interview was at 330 so I knew I had to be a bit sharpish. I had to squeeze in a trip from Euston to Ravenscourt Park in Goode Street and still have time for some major browsing. So I got to Ravenscourt Park in good time and immediately got lost. The thing is that the easiest way to go from the tube station to Dalling Road is to go by the station's back entrance. Otherwise you have to ask the locals and don't think any of them had heard of games, let alone Games Workshop. It took me nigh on half an hour to get from the tube station to the shop, all because some West Londoner didn't want to admit that he didn't know something. Anyway, I found the shop. There it was. The only comparison I can make to how it felt is, well, imagine yourself a Mad Beatles fan, and you just happen across the Cavern Club in Liverpool. That shop was that important to UK gamers. It was the homeland of the hobby. I was incredibly excited. I was excited by the posters and banners in the windows. I was excited by the display of painted minis. I was excited by the rows and racks of rule books, adventures and magazines laid out like a trendy second-hand record shop. 
I was excited by the exciting and inviting looking boxes arranged around the walls. I was excited by the little huddles of gamers talking to each other in hushed tones. Sophisticated seeming London gamers, more experienced than me and more knowledgeable than me about game shop etiquette. As excited as I was on that first visit though, it was not really the memory that stands out the most. What really impressed me about the shop and continued to impress me over subsequent years is how light and open the interior seemed. Two enormous windows at the front of the shop meant that there was none of the dark teenager bedroominess that seems to inflict most other hobby shops. It must have been a pleasure to work in. Anyway, I was there with not nearly enough money to my liking and I had to choose something so I could get that all-important Games Workshop carrier bag. A PVC badge of honour, if you will. I settled on Star Trek Starship Duel, set 2, as it was cheap, only uh, 4 95 I still have it tucked away somewhere in my top landing, but I've never played it, even though I read the rules loads of times. The trip back to Whitehaven from London was about 5 hours long. I always thanked or blamed gaming for getting me the home office job. The interview had gone okay. I didn't drool down myself, nor had I felt that impressive. I'd just got past the do you have any questions for us stage when the interviewers noticed my bag and asked me about it. Well, the floodgates opened and I went on at length about freeform narrative and simulationist versus narrative gaming and so on and so on. It either impressed them into giving me the job or terrified them into ensuring that I'd be never given high office. I'm happy with both. That's a great story, Steve. Thank you. Let me have yours at all the usual places. I'm most active on Twitter, where I'm at the Grognard File. Alternatively, comment on the site thegrognardfiles.com or email me at dirkthedice at gmail.com. Next time, there's more from Tim Olson as he faces my anecdotometer. The second part of At Daily Dwarf looks at tabletop heroes and heavy metal in White Dwarf. And I join Blythe to look at those figures that we had in the early days. Also, Hobgoblin Orange from Twitter provides us with a potted history of Citadel. It was Hobgoblin Orange that suggested that we looked at early Citadel in the first place. The next Patreon goal is for us to look at a game suggested by Patreons. The podcast will always be free, but generous support from Patreons covers the overheads and helps us to seek out additional content and supports our other projects. We'll be doing another fanzine this year and tickets for Grogmeet 2017 will be released to Patreons first at the end of this month. There's also an infrequent newsletter and online games available for patrons too. You can find out more at the site. I've got some uh, new uh, $5 patrons to thank. So let me start. I'm going to give a roll on this uh, table that's filled with some vintage Citadel miniatures. So let me roll on this. This is for T-Dub. Thanks, T-Dub. Okay, FTG 14. Norman the Null. Also known as Gilbert the Goblin. Okay. 
enjoy that T-dub. Okay, Reiner Doubleman. Uh, thanks, Reiner. Here's yours. You've got FTO14. Ogren Foulbreath. Orc Champion. Okay, let me do the next one. And this is for John Reinhard Hulsfeg. Thanks, John. You've got a FA36 Singing Bard with an Enchanted Loot. Okay, next up, FTG10 Two Drunken Knolls. Uh, that's uh, Neil Benson and Tom Gaffrey. Uh, thanks, you two. They were also players at the Luther Arkwright game at Convergence. I had a great time. It was a varied, intense adventure with engaged and fun players. Thanks, guys. So, thanks for all your support. Please subscribe, review and spread the word. Until next time, adios amigos.